Anyway, I don't know about you guys. Um, I'm, I actually rolled up my sleeves. It's a little bit warm up here. I, if it's not warm down there, my apologies. Uh, Craig came over yesterday and worked on it. Don uh, and Jewel came over yesterday and tried to work on it. We're trying to get the, the heater working. Uh, obviously, if I'm left to my own, I'm not going to do anything. My, my, the way that I handle things is to, to get on the phone. <laughs> That's that's my uh, that's my solution to to technical problems because uh, I'm just not technically gifted. I'm just not the type of person who uh, can can look at something and feel like intuitively. Oh, okay, let me tweak this and tweak that. Um, early in my marriage, my wife and I figured this out. We figured out that I am. Uh, actually uh, probably the least handy person she's ever met. And, and that's partly because her dad and her brother are both, you know, really handy guys. Um, and, and so she needs to be the one to, to figure things out in the home. Um, if we buy something that requires assembly, for example, uh, you know, she, she could put the box in the middle of the front room. And if it was left up to me, it would sit there for the whole year, <laughs> just because I'm I'm no good at doing this kind of things and it, those kinds of things, and I know it. Um, and it's not that I don't want to put it together. I I, I wish I could. Uh, and and believe me, early in my in, uh, early in our marriage, that's how we figured out that I was no good at this stuff because I tried. Um, <laughs> The problem is that when something comes with, you know, just a, a ton of instructions, you know, a bunch of uh, instruction manuals and, and something beyond flip on the switch and turn it on, you know, I feel like I kind of get bogged down with, uh, with details. Uh, so I, I suppose I just prefer everything I buy to be somewhat intuitive. And if it's not, well, my wife's really good with instruction manuals. Um, but I think my problem boils down to this. I, I like to go with, uh, with what's intuitive. I like to go with my initial instincts when it comes to, to learning about new things and when it comes to something that has you know, 15 or 20 parts and 50 or 60 screws, all different sizes, uh, you have to rely on more than just instincts. Well, there's a major misconception about Christianity in our world, and that is many people think that our faith is this old, stale faith that's based on a 2,000-plus-year-old instruction manual, which we call the Bible, as if the Bible is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's a bunch of boundaries and, and laws, and it's all about making you feel bad and acting a, a certain way. Uh, the, the Christian life is just so filled with rules and rules and rules. It's kind of like walking a tightrope over the Grand Canyon, you know, one step to the side and you're, and you're dead. Well, the central message of our text today is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And what we're going to see is that Christianity is not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. We're going to see that we're not only saved by grace. We all know that we were, we were saved by grace, but we're going to see that we continue to live by grace, to walk in it, which means being sensitive, learning to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so we're about to move very quickly from what we saw last week. Uh, this great theological passage about the nature of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. We're about to move really quickly from this, what you might call theological contemplation to real life application. Uh, understanding and knowing the, the, about the, you know, the great work of Christ on Calvary uh, is important. It's important to have that head knowledge, what Jesus did. But its purpose, all those, all those things that we know about what Jesus did on Calvary, the purpose is not just so you can compete on Jeopardy if the Bible category comes up. That's not what it's all about. It's, it's about more than just historical head knowledge. It starts there. 
You've you got to understand it. You, you need to understand what we talked about last week and, and other things about, about Christ's uh, atoning sacrifice. But once a person knows those truths and really internalizes those truths, the truth is it should change absolutely everything for you. It should change absolutely everything. It has to have an outworking. It has to have an effect on our lives. So we're coming down from what many uh, might liken to the Mount Everest of Scripture, uh, kind of a pinnacle of sorts, uh, without any doubt. Uh, Paul, Paul told us just about how, how Jesus stepped down from his, his throne in heaven in order to become one of us. He took on flesh in order that he might resolve the conflict that existed from the beginning of humanity in the Garden of Eden between God and humanity. And, how, and, and he's encouraging us to, to take on Christ's likeness, to be like him, uh, in order that he might resolve the conflict. You know, that was why he came down, to resolve the conflict. And that was the blueprint that we must follow for resolving conflict between Christians as well. Which can be a risky uh, and, and steep and dangerous uh, path to walk, if we're not careful. Because the truth is, there is no guarantee that if you do exactly what Paul just told us to do. If you humble yourself this way, there's no guarantee that the other person will do the same in return. In fact, some people uh, aren't troubled at all by causing division among Christians. And what do you do with somebody like that? What do you do with somebody who, you, you go to them humbly, you're trying to reconcile with them, you're following in Christ's footsteps, and they won't. What do you do with that? Paul answers that actually in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, where he writes, uh, watch out for those who cause divisions. And he goes on to say, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. You think it's important that we follow this blueprint? Yeah, it's really, really important that we follow this blueprint. If somebody doesn't follow this blueprint, if somebody doesn't uh, participate in resolving conflict peacefully and in a Christ-like manner, we're supposed to steer clear of them. That's dangerous stuff. We don't want to be on that end where, where people are steering clear of us. That person should consider the possibility that maybe they're really not that committed to following Jesus. But the fact is that the life that's devoted to Christ, the life that's devoted to following in Christ, will follow in his steps, will follow his example in resolving conflict and restoring peace. And this involves learning to live in a way that's totally, totally contrary to the flesh. You think Paul might have something really important to say, by the way? After all this you know, great theological talk, you think he might have something to say in light of that? He does. He, he says a lot that's really important. Uh, verses 12 to 13, Philippians chapter 2. This is what we read. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now don't forget that when you start a passage with the word therefore, it's a statement that's a reflection. It's reflecting back on the verses and the passages that led us up to this point. And so uh, when we see the word therefore, we want to look back and see what it's there for. And so if we're going in, in reverse order here, looking back through the book of Philippians, uh, starting at this point and going backwards, it's there because every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
Lord. That's verses 10 and 11. It's there because He alone has the name that's above every name. That's verse 9. It's there because Jesus taught us what it means to humble ourselves by humbling Himself in obedience to the Father. That's verse 8. It's there because He emptied Himself in order that His Spirit could fill us. Verse 7. It's there because if we're in Christ, we should have the mind of Christ. That's verse 5. Because we're fully capable of humbling ourselves in the same way, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, considering others more important than ourselves. How's that for contrary to the flesh? And considering the interests of others in addition to our own interests. That's verses 3 and 4. So Paul's saying that when we consider all of these great truths, all of these instructions that he's given us, it should change absolutely everything for us. When we consider these truths, we see both the importance and the beauty of denying ourselves. Because we have the mind of Christ, we have to resist the temptation to look to ourselves, and instead we must constantly be looking to the cross. Because God has given us this mind, the mind of Christ, there's a clear implication that we should be using it. He's given it to us, not just so we can sit on it, not just so we can put it on the back burner, but so that we can constantly use it. And that takes learning. And the more we adopt this mindset, the more we will learn to obey. And that's the first practical application of the truths that have led us up to this point. Paul says, obey. Obey what, you might ask? Uh, that's a good question. What, what are we supposed to obey? A, a bunch of rules? A bunch of you know do's and, and don'ts. Um, well, he, he kind of appears to leave this question unanswered, but he does give us a pretty good hint. He reflects back on the obedience that he initially saw from the Philippians when he first came to them in Philippi. And he tells them that they should continue just like they did it in his presence, much more in his absence. It's the same pattern of obedience. It's obedience to the gospel, living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. That's what he's talking about. It means knowing that Jesus is Lord of all, just like he just told us in the previous verses, knowing that Jesus is Lord of all, and then doing something with that knowledge. If you know that he's Lord of all, what are you going to do with that? It should be played out in our lives. We live it out in obedience. And that means taking the same attitude or a similar attitude to what Paul had, and that is to live as Christ. Our lives must revolve around Christ. Everything, every aspect. When Paul commends the Philippians for their obedience, he means that they're living a life that reflects the grace that they've been shown. It means that they've been living in recognition of the fact that they are not their own, but they've been bought by a high price. So contrary to the flesh. You see, there's this, this outworking in our lives of God's inworking. Does that make sense? Something happens inside and it should show up on the outside. It starts with obedience. God changes our hearts from a heart of stone that cannot obey Him to a heart of living flesh that can obey Him. That's what enables us to respond to Him in obedience. The changed heart. The changed nature. And so when a person refuses to be obedient... That is, when their, their life is lived for the sake of whatever they want. Selfish ambition, selfish pursuits, selfish desires. Something is very, very wrong because there's no outward evidence 
of this obedience that should be playing out, working out in our lives. There's no evidence of an outward change, which leads us to wonder if there's been an inward change. And that's why Jesus says, you'll know a good tree by its fruit, because good (laughs) trees don't produce bad fruit, and bad trees don't produce good fruit. So the type of obedience that Paul's talking about entails producing good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and no longer producing bad fruit, which is what we see in a person who's still living in accordance, who's still being led by the desires of their own flesh. And that includes, if you look at, if you know where the, where the, the fruit of the Spirit passage is in Galatians chapter 5, the preceding verses tell us what the, the uh, works of the flesh are. He says in verses 19 to 21 of Galatians 5, he says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So there's some gray area. Things like these. Things that the flesh desires. And by the way, some people will say, oh, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about not doing drugs. You see that word, um, uh, where is it? I know it's there, I just saw it. Sorcery. Sorcery. The word actually refers to uh, mixing chemicals together in order to get a reaction. Uh, so that you are in an altered state of mind. That's what sorcery was back then. So the Bible does say something about, uh, about taking drugs. But anyway, all of this stuff, if you consider all these works of the flesh, all these ways that our flesh nature will lead us, it sounds a lot like Las Vegas, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, they don't call it Sin City for nothing. Um, You know, of course, Las Vegas is famous because you can find those types of things without really putting a whole lot of effort into your search. But quite honestly, you can find all these things no matter where you go. You can indulge yourself in these things no matter where you are and really no matter where, uh, who you're with because it's a matter of what's going on in your heart. Now, Paul isn't saying that we won't be tempted by these things. You can guarantee that you will be tempted by these things. He's not saying you'll you'll never stumble into these things. We may, but don't be content with them. Don't be be comfortable with them. Don't don't just let them sit there and, and grow in your life. Repent and confess before the Lord and to your brothers and sisters in Christ immediately. And if a person continues to exhibit these types of things, and if there's no struggle against these things, then of course, there's no outward sign of obedience. That's really what it boils down to, obedience. And where there's no obedience, it's either because somebody is stifling the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, or it's because the Holy Spirit isn't present in their lives at all. This uncertainty, there is uncertainty And that's okay. We have to be comfortable with that. That's what causes the fear and trembling. That's because we respect God. We want to stand right before Him. And so there is a degree of uncertainty. You see, when when trials come and life gets difficult, it is so tempting to look for for an easier way out, to to not follow Jesus' model. Obedience takes work. It takes training. And Paul's instruction to work out, that is to be willfully obedient to the way that the Lord would have you go, producing good fruit to, to, to work, isn't going to be extremely popular in a world that values things like personal independence 
um, having fun, uh, you know, doing things differently than everybody else, even in the name of innovation. Paul's instruction is to do things the same way, repeatedly if necessary, that Jesus did things. And so Paul instructs us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Walk with fear and trembling before the Lord. Produce good fruit before the Lord with fear and trembling. And this is the first expression of obedience that Paul instructs his readers to demonstrate. And it's tricky. It rubs us a little bit raw. We, we kind of don't like the way that sounds because it sounds like Paul's saying that in some sense we have to work for our salvation. But we have to remember that there are different kinds, uh, different aspects of salvation. There's salvation, which is freedom from the penalty of sin. Anybody know what that's called? Justification. There's justification, which is the, the act of God forgiving us and, and saying not guilty. This person is innocent because they're, they're, under, they're, they're in Christ. They're under the blood of Christ. Uh, that's justification, being forgiven. Then there's salvation, from, uh, which is freedom from the power of sin, which is sanctification. And finally, there is freedom from the presence of sin. That's in the future. That's glorification. And so the question then is, which sense is Paul referring to? Is he referring to justification, sanctification, or glorification? He's obviously not talking about justification because in Galatians 2.16, he emphatically and clearly states that by the works of the law, none will be, here's that word, justified. None will be justified by the works of the law. So that's not what he's talking about here. Sanctification, however, is different. The leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into us. He dwells within us. And He is the means by which we become separated from the power of sin. But that requires, you guessed it, obedience. We follow His leading. He, he weighs something heavy on our hearts or on our conscience. We follow that. We react accordingly. Being obedient to His leading in our lives. Being learned, and that means learning to be sensitive to the things he, he leads us to do. So what does it mean to, to work out our salvation? It means turn the lights in your life on. Let your light shine. Don't keep it hidden. See, your life is intended, your life in Christ is intended to be an outward reflection of the inward reality of both the presence of and the working, the progressive working in your life of the Holy Spirit. And why do we have to do it with fear and trembling? Why should we do it with fear and trembling? I think the answer is found in, in one of everybody's favorite Proverbs. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, you won't walk right before Him. That's just the way it is. That's the way it works. When, we, when, when, you, when there's a cop, why do you slow down? When you're driving by them. Because you're afraid of getting pulled over, right? The same way with God. A healthy dose of the fear of the Lord is what we need. Without a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord, we will not learn to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Without a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord, we will not be obedient to what He leads us to do. Without a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord, instead of being led by the Holy Spirit, you and I will be led by our flesh into all these things that Paul's already told us. This is not a fear, however, that leads us to despair. Rather, this is a fear that leads us to a greater personal holiness. 
This is a fear that teaches us not to become arrogant, overly confident, or overly self-reliant, or, but to be humble and to be gentle in spirit. This is a fear that leads us to become more and more and more like Jesus. This is a fear that gives us a reason to hope because it gives us evidence of our sanctification. And sanctification is really proof of justification. If somebody's been justified, they will be sanctified. The power of the Holy Spirit will move them away from sin. And if that person is not moving away from their sin, they will need to question justification in their lives. Sanctification is the only proof of justification. And the reason that our salvation, our our sanctification in that sense, the reason that our, our sanctification must be worked out with fear and trembling is because if you are in Christ, the presence of God is always with you. It's always in you. And that means that he's there with you when the trials come. He's there with you when the difficulties of life come your way. In fact, and you may not like this, this fact, the truth is he may have led you right into a difficult situation. He may have led you right into a trial or, or, or something that, that tests you just so he could teach you how to handle it, handle that situation, handle that trial, that difficulty in a way that honors him. So part of our sanctification is learning how to resolve conflict with a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Because when we resolve conflict in a way that honors God, which means handling it God's way, not, not our way, but God's way. It illustrates, it's a powerful illustration, it's a living illustration of the message and the power of the gospel. The difficulty when we face trials in this life is that we're not all just like a a bunch of robots that have been correctly programmed. We don't automatically just do the right thing uh, without a free will of our own to lead us astray. It's not like God was a a programmer and just uh, programmed us to work perfectly every single time because we have no way of overriding his programming. So how do we handle the various trials, the various difficulties and situations that we face, knowing that the Bible doesn't speak explicitly on a lot of the issues that we will face in life. Our, Our culture today is a lot different than the first century culture or the, the pre, uh, pre-Christian, uh, pre-Christian culture. It's very, very different. It's a different world entirely. Did you know that the Bible has nothing explicit to say about how to handle a relative who has a drug or alcohol addiction? It doesn't say anything explicitly about how to handle that. You know, the Bible has nothing to say about picking up the telephone to call somebody when they're down and could use a, some lifting up, some encouragement. It doesn't say anything about that. So what we have to learn to do is be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. You can find the principles in Scripture, but the Holy Spirit is going to be working in accordance with those principles. He's going to be trying to teach you those principles as well. So if you're reading Scripture and following the, the, the Holy Spirit, you're getting kind of a double dose of instruction. So Paul doesn't tell them step by step exactly how to resolve this conflict that they're having. He doesn't say, here's what you need to do. Uh, Euodia, you need to go to Syntyche and you know, why don't the both of you sit in a, in a neutral room, not neither person. He doesn't say any of that stuff. He leaves it all kind of vague and blank because he wants them to follow the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. See, this is bringing us back to the misconception that the Bible is just a, a, 
this book full of do's and, and don'ts and rules and regulations, and uh, it's just there to make you feel bad. The Bible does not serve that purpose in the life of the Christian. The Bible tells us to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. It gives us what we need to know up to that point, but there's a lot of gray area. And so there's a lot of things that we'll need to figure out on our own, but we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit because He'll help us get through those things. See, God saved us by His grace through faith, and He dwells within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. The Bible teaches us that, but we have to live. We, live in, we have to live in the culture that we're born into. And we have to make difficult choices that may not be answered directly or explicitly in Scripture. But we have a secret source of life and direction and wisdom in the fact that the Holy Spirit is living in us and helping us when we're confronted with difficult choices. See, so often we're tempted to live as if we've been left on our own to make the tough calls, to make the tough decisions, and to deal with, with hard circumstances. But Paul's reminding us that that's not true. We haven't been left alone. We'll never be left alone. The God who sent His Son for us sent His Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to shape us, to mold us into Christ's image, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The question is, how sensitive are we to His leading? Because He is leading us. See, here's where we see the difference between the legalist and the person who lives by grace. The legalist believes that everything is wrong unless the Bible specifically and explicitly says that it's permissible. That's why in some, in some denominations you don't have music, uh, musical instruments uh, because the Bible doesn't explicitly say you can have an electric guitar up on stage. So, Bible's silent, we don't touch it. The person who walks by grace, on the other hand, totally different, has a much different view. They believe that everything is permissible unless the Holy Spirit or the Scriptures instruct them otherwise. And as a side note, the Holy Spirit will always lead us in accordance with the Scriptures. He'll never lead us against the Scriptures. So that means we're free to live and to choose in accordance with the way that the Holy Spirit is directing our conscience Understanding what Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not all things edify. Not all things are, are beneficial in some way. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 14, Paul emphasizes the importance of acting in accordance with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this is the conclusion he comes to in verse 23. He says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What's the Holy Spirit put on your conscience? What's he put on your heart? What's he leading you to do? And sometimes we, we know that, we know we shouldn't do something, and we do it anyway. And Paul's saying, if you're acting in a way that's contrary to your conscience to what the Holy Spirit has put on your conscience, on your heart. That's sin. So our confidence for dealing with the difficult seasons and trials of life has to be based firmly in the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are in Him. He's in us. We're never left alone on our own to figure things out without, without any type of direction, without any kind of leading whatsoever. He's living through us, we're living in Him, and we can fully rely on His love for us and the work that He's done and continues to do in our lives. When we can learn to just 
be obedient to that much. Recognizing the fact that he is teaching us to become like Jesus. And he will lay things on our conscience, on our hearts. When we can learn to be obedient to that much, we're ready to experience a fuller expression of obedience, which looks like what Paul writes next in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So here Paul is basically going right back to the root of the issues that the Philippians were facing. There's division, there's bickering, there's squabbling, there's arguing, there's dissension. They're grumbling against one another. They're, they're having disputes with one another. And Paul puts the solution in crystal clear language for us. Do, do everything without grumbling or disputing. Basically, don't argue. Quit your bickering, is what he's saying. It sounds like he's a parent, doesn't it? Well, the Israelites... They were a perfect illustration of this point. While they, while they were going through the wilderness, while they were being led to the promised land, they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Uh, it, it, it's almost comical. In Exodus uh, chapter 16, verse 2, we read, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. It's comical because can you imagine like a million people grumbling against you? I mean, it's, it's really bad, uh, you know, as a pastor. You know, when two or three people are grumbling against me, I, I, I lose sleep. Can you imagine like a million people grumbling? Oh, man, I can't even imagine it. It's, it's got to be pretty intense. But, you know, uh, with one sentence, with one sentence, Moses turns the whole thing around. He flips them right on their heads and gives them what might be likened to a verbal pile driver. In verse 8, chapter 16, verse 8 of Exodus, Moses says, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You see, what grumbling and bickering and arguing, complaining constantly, what that really reveals is a dissatisfaction and a distrust in the Lord himself. It demonstrates that a person doesn't really fully believe that the Holy Spirit is working in them to strengthen them and to guide them with wisdom through their trials. It demonstrates a disbelief in the promise that God is working out all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. It shows that a person doesn't believe that the grace of God is sufficient to get them through any trial or tribulation. And all this is extremely, extremely significant. Because as Paul points out here, when we grumble and complain and argue with and about one another, the world cannot see the light of the life in Christ within us. And so now we see what the real cost, the real consequence of selfish ambition is with one another. Here we see that self-exaltation has a cost. It has a penalty. It has a, a, a consequence. The truth is that selfishness, as demonstrated through grumbling and arguing and disputing and bickering, leaves those who are lost in darkness right where they are. And so when we're tempted to bicker and to complain about other Christians, this is the reality check that we need. This is a serious reality check. See, if you respond to an offense by, by a fellow Christian with grumbling and complaining, 
What kind of a witness is that going to be to your non-Christian neighbor? What kind of a witness is that going to be to the world who, by the way, handles conflict the exact same way when they're upset? You see, the, the difference between the way you handle conflict as a Christian and the way they do should be apparent. Unless there's something supernatural about the way you handle conflict and the way that you love and the way that you forgive your Christian brothers and sisters when they offend you, Paul's saying it's going to diminish your light if you don't cut it out. Do nothing, do everything without grumbling or complaining, and you will shine in this dark world. If you don't, you will not shine in this world. So there should be something about each one of us that this crooked and twisted generation has no explanation for. They look at you and they see, they see the fact that you're sitting next to somebody who's nothing like you. They, they, they know that there's been an offense between the two of you. And you love each other anyway and they have to say, I have no explanation for it other than the God they, they believe in must be working in them. That's what Paul's saying here. A life that is constantly led and constantly, constantly being transformed by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in us can be a powerful witness of the gospel to the world. But complaining and arguing, especially about other Christians, will dim and greatly diminish the light that's been given to us. The third expression of obedience is found in verses 16 to 18. And it's, it's kind of a byproduct of our, of our refusal to grumble or complain. And therefore, the witness of our light is shining brightly for the world to see. So we read in the next uh, three verses, 16 to 18. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith... I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. There's always a reason to rejoice. Rejoice, that's one of the great themes of, of the book of, of Philippians. In, in the book that's really about conflict, rejoice is one of the predominant themes. You see, there, there is a life that is lived for absolutely nothing, ultimately. And then there's a life that is radically transformed, radically different, which is not lived in vain, which is not lived for nothing. The things that we do out of vanity, the things that we do out of selfish ambition or conceit, ultimately are all done in vain. It's ultimately a waste of our lives. The only things that have eternal significance are the things that are done out of a loving obedience to God and a love for the people that He created for our neighbors, especially for those who are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Like Paul, we should be living every day of our lives in anticipation of the day when we will stand before the Lord. Every single one of us will stand before the Lord someday, and every deed will be laid out for inspection and will be held accountable. And the things which are done for the glory of Christ, built on the foundation of that Christ made out of a willful and devoted obedience to Him will be like the purest gold, the purest silver, the, the finest jewels, and it'll be on display for everybody to see. Paul writes this to the Corinthians in chapter 3. He says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation, again, the foundation is Jesus Christ, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That's a scary reality. What that means is when we're in heaven someday, there will be some people who come into heaven smelling like they just came from a bonfire. That's a scary reality. Because their works weren't done for the glory of God. And so they'll be burned up. The person will be saved, but there's no reward. Their works are burned up, and they come into heaven smelling like, you just came from a, a huge bonfire. But then some people will come into heaven... And their works will withstand the fire, the test, because they were done purely out of selfless submission and obedience to the Holy Spirit for the sake of glorifying Christ. So what's the difference between the two? What makes the difference between the two? Paul tells us that the difference is holding fast to the word of life. What does that mean? What does it mean to hold fast to the word of life? It must be seen as a contrast given how this is all structured, it's a contrast to grumbling and disputing. Grumbling and disputing causes our witness to vanish. Thus, instead of being preoccupied with grumbling and disputing with one another, we have to remain focused instead, conversely, the opposite, on proclaiming the word of life, which is the gospel message. Holding fast to the word of life means remaining humbly obedient to the life of Christ in us. Humbly submissive to the will of the Holy Spirit as He puts something on our conscience, faithfully proclaiming the good news and thus shining the light of Christ into this dark, dark world. So instead of your light being diminished, your light is growing. It's blowing up. So this is simply just another way of exhorting the Philippians and us by default to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reminding us that living in any other manner is all in vain. It's all for nothing. And so Paul says that even if he is going to be poured out like a sacrificial drink offering, that's kind of gruesome, isn't it? You, know, you, you think that some of the stuff we see on TV is gruesome. You imagine somebody being poured out like a drink offering. That's, that's a gruesome picture. He says that even though this is probably going to be a reality in his life, He's going to rejoice just in knowing that the Philippians are holding fast to the word of life and they can rejoice, in, uh, rejoice with him. He's poured out his life for them, just like Jesus poured out his life for us. Paul knows that there's a good chance that he will be put to death. But it's not in vain. It's not all for nothing if it's what happens because he's held fast to the word of life, being faithfully obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life, being willing to pour out his life to serve others. The point here is that if Paul can rejoice over this self-sacrificial obedience to Christ, then the Philippians can rejoice for the same reason, knowing that whether they live or die, Christ will be glorified in their lives. He will be exalted because their witness is blossoming. It's blowing up. See, there's, there's a joy and a peace that this brings, knowing that God will be glorified through our obedience. And it overrides and it negates 
anything and everything which would cause us to feel anything else that could cause us to feel fear about death. We have no reason to feel fear about death. To live is Christ, to die is gain. We read in the book of Hebrews about the joy that Jesus felt as he was about to be nailed to the cross. We read that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, this is a man of sorrows, according to Isaiah, right? He's a man of sorrows. But he had joy. We might be tempted to think, why in the world would he feel joy as he looked to the cross that he was about to die on. He knew for a long time. He, he warned the disciples for a long, long time that this was what was coming. Ultimately, he was going to be killed. He knew it. And yet, he had joy about it. And why? It was the same reason that Paul rejoiced. He anticipated the, uh, with joy. He was rejoicing over the fact that people's lives would be changed. The people whose lives would otherwise have been destroyed by the effects of sin will experience forgiveness. Will experience reconciliation with God. Will experience newness of life in Christ. And so Paul could rejoice and the, and the Philippians could rejoice with him because his life was humbly poured out. His life was completely devoted to being obedient to the Holy Spirit as it led him to serve others, doing the will of God. See, joining with one another and loving one another, and not just loving one another, but doing it well by the power of the Holy Spirit out of a desire to be obedient to Christ gives us every reason we need to rejoice. We can rejoice because we are His people. He's in us. And even in the trials and the difficulties in life, we can rejoice because Christ is enough. He's enough. He's with us. And He'll see us through. And He will never, ever give up on us. Following His example, we must never give up on each other. That's what this is all about. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you. Teach us, Lord, to walk with fear and trembling before you. Recognizing that we don't belong to ourselves, but that we belong to you. And we pray, Lord, that through your, your Holy Spirit, laying things on our conscience... Lord, that we would learn to become more like you, that we would be sensitive to his leading, and that we would follow after the things that he's calling us to do, that we would learn to be obedient and submissive. Just like you, Lord Jesus, were submissive even to death on a cross. You were obedient. Teach us to be obedient to what you lead us to do. Teach us, Lord, to live our lives for your glory and not for our own. Lord, we know that the things that we do out of selfishness and conceit, selfish ambition, Lord, it's all for nothing. But Lord, we want our lives to count for something. We want it to count for your glory. That's what we are supposed to be about. That's what you've called us to be about. So Holy Spirit, teach us to be obedient to your leading in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. It was so much more.
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.